When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Though Star Trek eventually made it to TV, its first season was only greenlit after two very different pilot episodes, both scored by Alexander Courage. From there, Courage scored music for the rest of the first season along with four other composers, Fred Steiner, Saul Kaplan, Joseph Mullendore, and Gerald Freed. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode has us boldly going right into our five-composer mission, the first season of Star Trek The Original Series, which aired on NBC beginning on September 8, 1966, with season one's last episode airing on April 13, 1967. We're going to discuss a handful of composers and crew members who made the Star Trek soundtracks happen during season one, We'll also discuss the realities of reusing music for the majority of Star Trek's episodes, a process referred to as tracking the music, and why all of that tracking was done in the 1960s. We'll even discuss the groundbreaking and imaginative sound effects work for the series. But before we do, we're going to continue to explore the music of Alexander Sandy Courage, starting with his first assignment, Star Trek Pilot Number 1, called The Cage, produced in 1964 and scored by Courage in January of 65. We're going to see how the final presentation of this pilot fared with Desilu, its production company owned by Lucille Ball, and NBC, the network which eventually aired Star Trek over a year later. Spoiler alert, the first pilot never quite made it to television in the way that it was first created, but every scrap of music that Courage wrote for this pilot is extremely important, as it sets the tone for orchestral writing throughout the series, and the majority of it is re-edited again and again into future episodes. More on that later. First, a quick synopsis of the first pilot of Star Trek called The Cage, so that we may better understand the task ahead for Courage and his small orchestra. Captain Christopher Pike leads the Starship Enterprise and its crew to the fourth planet of Talos. There, they find a settlement of humans that have been missing for 18 years. Among them is a beautiful woman named Vina, who the captain is quite taken with, and vice versa. But wait! It's all a trick! It's an illusion played on their minds. 
for there are these powerful, brainy aliens called Talosians, and they've lured the captain there with their superior mind power. And now, they keep him and Vina, who is real after all, though slightly modified by the Talosians, in a menagerie of sorts, amongst all kinds of species deep below the planet's surface. The captain and his crew must use their wits to escape. They ultimately do by masking their thoughts from the Talosians with their temper, and we are shown that the human spirit cannot be caged, even when presented with an illusion of a Matrix-style paradise in which they could live out their days in total tranquility. Vina, who as I said was real, was found by the Talosians as a child and reconstructed by them. Disfigured, however, she has been made to look more human, even beautiful by the Talosians, as an allusion to the captain and also to herself. Vina opts to stay with the Talosians, and Captain Pike and his crew sail off into space on the Starship Enterprise, ready for their next mission. So, what are the musical implications of that plot summary? Remember when I mentioned that Star Trek was an anthology series that could take us on all kinds of different adventures? Okay, so let's just think about this one episode alone and its musical needs. We have the ship, the Starship Enterprise. We have the characters that we need to establish. That all seems like standard stuff for a pilot. But even in this first script, you have a one-off race of aliens that you never meet again, so we need to establish them. And they are constantly casting illusions of different locations that we, the audience, get caught up in along with Captain Pike. A medieval castle on a far-off planet called Rigel 7, where Pike fights a barbarian. And a pastoral farm back on Earth where Pike and Vina have a picnic, as if they were husband and wife. And finally, an exotic pleasure palace on Orion. Again, all Talosian mind tricks. Those all need special music. As will our guest star of the week, the character Vina, Pike's love interest in this episode, played by actress Susan Oliver. She'll need a theme. It was clear to Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry very early on that an orchestral score was absolutely called for. Here's a quote from Roddenberry from a 1982 interview. Quote, My feeling was this, that for the first time on television, I was going to have situations and life forms that were totally unlike what the audience was accustomed to. And I thought, my God, I had better keep as many things as possible very understandable to my audience. I was afraid that if, on top of bizarre alien seascapes, I had beep, beep, beep music, his way of saying electronic music, then I would be in trouble. And so I wanted music that said adventure, courage, boldness, all of the things we talked about, as a matter of fact, in the opening words of, you know, to boldly go and so on. End quote. So like Star Wars a decade later on the big screen, Roddenberry wisely wanted romantic orchestral music for his wagon train to the stars so that a balance could be struck between the fantastic and the familiar. Keeping this in mind, let's begin our look at the very first episode of Star Trek and its music by Alexander Courage. We'll start aboard the Enterprise, where after a scene on the bridge with no music, we're treated to a first pass at Enterprise sound effects, Captain Pike retires to his quarters. The ship's doctor, and this is before Bones and DeForest Kelly, the ship's doctor comes for a visit, and we hear the captain complain about, well, being a captain, about the weight of responsibility on his shoulders. As he does, we hear a melancholy version of the main title, the main fanfare, as underscore, as well as a bit of the ending of the main theme here. 
and at one point we hear a jump up to the leading tone in the melody. This will appear several times in the episode, as it seems to be a little motif for Captain Pike, perhaps. The ship makes contact with a stranded colony on the Talos system, and after a travel montage set to the main title music again, they go down to the planet and meet them. When they do, we get the same kind of underscore we had on the ship, but this time, it's interrupted with a new theme. Vena's theme. And it goes like this. It's got this kind of chromatic dissension. Kind of like what Courage has set up in the main melody of Star Trek. If the key is here, and the melody starts a major sixth above, goes down a step, then descends all the way down to the flat seventh from where it started, and then climbs back up to the second, and then back up to the major sixth. And listen to that instrumentation played on a flute, but also a human voice at times? A muted flute? This goes back to Courage's combinations of sounds to try and make something otherworldly, something unique to Star Trek. And speaking of otherworldly, in this moment, we also see that Vina, the stranded colonists, and the crew of the Enterprise are being watched by large-brained aliens called Talotians. And check this music out. One eerie and kind of spacey above, playing a meandering, mysterious chromatic melody, sitting over a plucked guitar that's just descending in half-steps chromatically every time it plays. And at one point, we actually hear this Talosian theme and Venus theme playing in counterpoint off each other. don't know it yet, but this is foreshadowing that the Talosians are actually making Vina appear attractive to Pike. But in the Talosian theme, what is that spacey instrument up top? Well, I want to stop everything for a very important introduction. These sounds are being made by a musician and electronic music pioneer named Jack Cookerly. Cookerly's name and the sounds he produced will come up several times while discussing both the music and sounds of Star Trek. After graduating from Occidental College in 1949, Jack Cookerly became an arranger and composer for CBS Radio in Los Angeles and started playing around town as a recording session keyboardist. But what makes Cookerly special is that his electronic inventions on both the organ and guitar made him one of the early pioneers of synthesizers and synthesizer patents. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, Cookerly was known for making far-out sounds on his, quote, magic box, which was an organ, an old Hammond organ that he pulled apart and reassembled with his own unique circuits. And the sounds he made 
contributed tremendously to the mid-century soundtracks of TV, as well as science fiction and horror movies. But Cookerly was also a guitarist and invented the world's first electronic guitar. Not the first electric guitar, but the first electronic guitar. The difference? Well, rather than being an electric guitar, whose vibrating strings are picked up by a magnetic coil, literally called a pickup, and amplified, each string on an electronic guitar is actually its own synthesizer, and it was invented by Jack Cookerly. There was a fellow in town named Jack Cookerly who had been playing with, with various kinds of strange things on guitars. And uh, in, you know, this, this is be just at the absolute bare beginning of the synthesizer. <laughs> He's using his electronic guitar to create spacey synth notes in order to score these Telosian aliens. And along with their makeup and wardrobe, this makes for quite an eerie scene. You know, of all of season one's composers, Sandy Courage was the only one who experimented with non-orchestral instruments, but only as a small additional flavor to his scores, something that Jerry Goldsmith would also do with his Trek scores years later. This won't be the last time we hear of Cookerly and his otherworldly instruments. Back to the pilot. Later, the Telosians capture Pike and cause him to have illusions. He relives a medieval-type battle that he had recently with a giant brute on Rigel 7, and Courage brings his brass chops to bear, including a very enthusiastic tuba part, giving us a bit of the brute's mindless attacks. <laughs> Later, we see an illusion of Vina and Pike back on Earth, having a picnic, and the music gets folksy and pastoral. It couldn't be any more different than Rigel 7. Listen to this, guitar, woodwinds, a complete musical departure from everything we've heard this far. It's evident right from the pilot that Star Trek would have a wide variety of needed styles for all kinds of science fiction situations that the writers would dream up each week. And in this first pilot, Alexander Courage doesn't disappoint. And probably the most famous scene in the pilot is when the Telosians create the illusion that Pike owns a pleasure palace on the Orion colony, where he sees Vina dancing seductively in front of Pike and his guests. Oh, and by the way, she is, like Ula the Twi'lek in Jabba's palace, completely green. Covered in green makeup, she is dancing to vaguely Eastern music that is an arrangement of Vina's theme. You can hear Vina's melody and that signature interval drop here. This, by the way, is a reworking of the earliest music ever written for Star Trek. 
Wilbur Hatch, remember him? Long before a composer was hired at Desilu, wrote some temp dance music so that Susan Oliver and the show's choreographer would have something to rehearse to and then dance to on shoot days, far before the Star Trek pilot was scored by Courage. By the way, I have a question that I want to put to you as listeners. Why do these TV scores sound different than, say, a feature score? If you're thinking that it's because it's a smaller orchestra, you'd be absolutely correct. Typically, there were less than 30 players in the orchestra for each given Star Trek session, as opposed to your typical 75 to 100 pieces found in a symphonic orchestra playing on big film scores. But specifically, I want to point out just how it's so much smaller. In most cases, the scores for Star Trek are performed with a huge section missing from the orchestra. There are practically no fiddles. No violins, no second violins, and in this pilot, there are also no violas and no cellos. Arguably, the most famous section in a symphonic orchestra is gone from these arrangements and recordings. The sound of Star Trek's music is that of a wind ensemble, with only some scores featuring maybe a small string section or a smattering of string players or string soloists. Why? Why is this? If you're guessing that it has to do with money, you'd be correct again. But why target string specifically for omission? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Typically, for acoustic balance or competing loudness, there are two string players for every one woodwind or brass player. The string sections are usually quite big and therefore quite expensive. And each section, the first violin section, the second violin section, by the way, as I keep mentioning these sections, we're going down in pitch. First violins have the highest pitch. Second violins usually do a harmony below. Violas have uh, more of a mid-range. Cellos are low mids. And then basses are bass. Anyway, each section, the first violins, second violins, violas, cellos, etc., they feature what is called a section leader, a person who oversees their section and can act as a contractor as well when the musicians are being assembled for a session. And, as they're all under union contracts, section leaders make one and a half times per session what a normal musician makes. So, let's see, first violins, second violins, violas, cellos, that's a lot of sections. It's a lot of money. Also, a second big reason, and this is really something to consider when talking about Star Trek in general. We're discussing old-school TV broadcasts here. Ever wonder why Trek's performances are so big, why the lighting is so colorful, so bold, and plays heavily with light and shadow on faces? Well, consider watching a 10-inch TV with monophonic sound, in either color if you're lucky, but probably black and white, and you get an idea of Star Trek's original presentation. Well, musically, woodwinds and brass and percussion give you a lot of oomph to cut through a mono TV speaker. Plenty of honking mid-range, so woodwinds and brass are very effective musically and financially when working on a 1960s TV budget. And for the time and the money they were given, I'd say that these composers really made the most out of it. When you scored The Cage, do you have any memory of how much music you wrote and how long you had to do it? Well, I did it in a week between working at Fox 
I don't know, there must have been about a, a half an hour of music at least in it. That was it. Composed it, orchestrated it, and conducted it. And do you recall how big the band was? It wasn't very big. It was 20, 22 maybe, somewhere in there. Do you have any memories of the recording session? I'm assuming yes, it was done yes. in one day. Oh yes, it was done in one session. <laughs> in the morning and in the afternoon, you know, sort of 10 to 1 or 2 to 5 or something like that. Along with scoring over a half hour of pilot music, Sandy Courage, Jack Cookerly, and a few engineers booked a musical sound effects session. Another thing that we did do, uh, once I was sort of in the, in the loop and on the show and so forth, I suggested to Gene that it might be fun, and by this time I'd seen the pilot, uh, I suggested that it might be fun to make sound effects musically for all of the sound effects that were needed on the alien planet. And uh, so we went into radio recorders one evening with about five musicians, a tenor sax, a vibraphone, of uh, uh, maybe a cello, I'm not sure. Anything that we could, and we, we had them make certain kinds of sounds. And then we started you know, in those primitive days of <clears throat> remixing the sound and, and uh, um, playing with it till we got the elevator doors opening and the wind and the, through the strange looking flowers on the planet and that sort of stuff. So many of the sound effects in the original Star Trek pilot were created music. Yes. Sandy Courage, creating multiple effects with Cookerly's Magic Box modified organ, including the planet surface ambiences. M16 take two. That, uh, that crazy uh, pitch thing that you've got, pull it down a half tone and up again and make it sound like the flutes did before. I can only do it one note at a time. Yeah. The sick bass scanner, which includes a thumping bass, a window bump for when Pike tries to escape his cage by bumping into the transparent wall, the Telosian elevators, a simple bell tree, Rattling maracas, a sound that would be saved for a virus that would haunt the ship in a later episode called The Naked Time. Star Trek 7, MX4, take one. And those famous transporter tones, again featuring Cookerly at his magic box organ. But one last sound effect was still missing, and the producers were scratching their heads. They couldn't figure out the right sound for the Enterprise whooshing by the camera. Ultimately, it was Courage who had the solution. Actually, Courage was the solution. The one thing I do recall was I went into the booth, and we were all sitting around, and they were talking about the fact that they had not been able to get the, the proper kind of sound for the spaceship going across the screen as, you know, in the beginning of the main title. And uh, so I, I said, well, what's the matter? And they said, well, we can't get, we've tried electronic things, and we've tried this and that. I said, look, you can't, you know, it won't cost you anything. Give me a microphone and give me the picture. So I went out on the, on the stage <clears throat> and uh, watched the screen and as it went by, 
there was the microphone. I just went, and that's what they used. That's right. Sandy Courage himself is the sound of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek 7, MX-1, take one. Pretty cool. Anyway, to wrap up the pilot, Pike does, of course, escape the cage that the Telosians have put him in, and by the end of the pilot, all is returned to normal. Vina willingly stays with the Telosians, and the main title music comes back over the closing credits. The pilot is complete. Wow. <laughs> Good job, everyone. Great job. That really came together. I can't believe it only cost... Wait, what? $600,000? That's the equivalent of over $6 million today. For a pilot? Holy... Listen, most pilots at the time of this recording cost anywhere from two to five million dollars to make. So six million is definitely on the high side. For that kind of money, oh, NBC needed to really love this pilot. But unfortunately for Roddenberry and Star Trek, they didn't. And now for a brief intermission. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We return now to the soundtrack show. What are we running here, a cadet ship number one? Are we ready or not? All decks are ready, sir. Engage. The first pilot was lavish and well-produced and well-directed. A very interesting idea, but couldn't be sold because it did not have a, a central dramatic line that you could follow easily where you knew who you were rooting for. It wasn't that kind of a story. And it, it was a very interesting idea from a Freudian and Jungian point of view, but it was not typical television by any means. The networks didn't get it. Westerns were big, and I wanted to sell it, and I said, look, fellas, it's little more than a Western. We have spaceships instead of horses, zap guns instead of six-shooters, but it'll be familiar. And uh, unfortunately, when they gave me the money and set of good actors and a director, I, I just, uh, I went ape. <laughs> and they didn't get what they had asked for or what they had agreed on, and they were naturally very upset. Frustrated into a need to display physical prowess, the creature will throw himself against the transparency. If you were in here, wouldn't you test the strength of these walls, too? There's a way out of any cage, and I'll find it. After reviewing Star Trek's first pilot episode, The Cage, NBC rejected it. Partially because of the expense, but also because they didn't love the characters. They felt it was too cerebral. Probably didn't help that there were literally aliens with massive brains walking around in half the episode. But anyway, they wanted it to be more action-oriented and certainly more heroic. Oh, and cheaper. Hey, can you guys make it cheaper? Uh, the show went over... Uh schedule, just as I had warned the people of Desilu that it would, no matter how much they, they cut the budget and the shooting schedule, we were still going to finish in the time it takes to shoot the show. Surprisingly, in a very, very rare move, NBC ordered up a second pilot for Star Trek. 
Alexander Courage and team would have to take another shot at the pilot. And as we all know, Star Trek was picked up for a first season. And it's because this time, on this second pilot, NBC and Desilu wanted more action, more heroism, and new characters. So the show was revamped and recast. William Shatner becomes Captain James Kirk. Leonard Nimoy returns as Mr. Spock, though his character is now going to be lacking in feeling, representing scientific logic. In this way, he would replace Major Barrett's role as number one from the first pilot, as that was a strong character trait of number one. They recast the doctor. Uh, Major Barrett, who had been the second in command of the ship, was given another role. She was cast as Nurse Chapel instead. Uh, the only character that remained intact in casting and, and concept was Spock, which was f- lucky for me. I believe there's some hope for you after all, Mr. Spock. Let's see, what else? What's missing? Ah, still no DeForest Kelly as Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, but that would soon follow. And we need to talk about the script. The script featured a lot more bravado from our now non-reluctant captain, and a lot more action. Science fiction was still the heart of the show, but this time, the plot, based on an outbreak of telekinesis within the crew of the Enterprise, culminates in a big fist fight between Captain Kirk and the guest star of the week, right next to Kirk's imagined gravesite, or as composer Sandy Courage called the scene, two guys fighting in a ditch. He told me that he said the network uh, doesn't like all this spooky stuff up in space. He said they want two guys fighting each other in a ditch. And I said, well, <laughs> like a regular old Western. So that's what it was. On Monday, November 29th, 1965, the week right after Thanksgiving, the second Star Trek pilot's orchestral score was recorded, featuring six woodwind players as opposed to ten on the cage, four French horns as opposed to three on the cage, three trumpets, three trombones, one tuba, one organ pianist, Jack Cookerly, and four percussionists, a slightly modified orchestral lineup from the cage, a bit smaller, as they had to prove that Star Trek could be made for less money than they had spent on the first pilot. We went ahead to do it again under a very strict budgetary control, and, and the budget was a killer. Star Trek's second pilot features bold, brassy music, some of which I'll play in a bit. But the first, very noticeable change happens right at the very beginning. Gone is our iconic theme song, with its mysterioso opening notes, the brassy fanfare, and the siren song melody. Instead, we kick right into a new opening style altogether. A voiceover from our new captain, James Kirk, accompanied by new music, kicks off our second pilot. He is reading an expositional captain's ship log, giving us, the audience, a picture of just how far away we are traveling from our Milky Way galaxy. Enterprise log, Captain James Kirk commanding. We are leaving that vast cloud of stars and planets which we call our galaxy. Behind us, Earth, Mars, Venus, even our sun are specks of dust. A question. What is out there in the black void beyond? The electronic, sonar-like notes are courtesy of Cooker Lee and his magic box organ. And we are treated to a new theme a four-note, brassy motif signaling our more action-oriented show, our new Star Trek. The theme goes like this. It starts in minor, but is eventually played in a major key by low brass. 
Here is how the new pilot opened, as presented to NBC in 1965. Though this opening was not seen or heard by the public in this way when this episode finally aired, and yes, this episode does eventually become part of season one. After our opening expository monologue and title screen, we go straight into our pilot, and we discover that Courage's new score is very, very dramatic, very dark, almost atonal at times, and quite serious about the action on screen. Not creepy or heady with twangy guitars, but instead filled with modernistic bombast. It tells the story of not only Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, but of Kirk's friend and helmsman Gary Mitchell played by guest star Gary Lockwood, as he obtains powerful ESP abilities after a run-in with a force field of some kind, as Mr. Spock calls it. I love how in this opening pilot, by the way, Leonard Nimoy is directed to call things out like he's on a submarine. Force field of some kind. Listening to the opening minor flute and percussion line, we hear dread almost immediately. But we'll notice that the new four-note theme plays within the underscore quite a bit. We are clearly getting what Courage is setting up as Star Trek's new main theme. As they approach the force field, more dread, with our theme quoted here and there in the low brass, and eventually with full power by the trumpets in its minor mode. Once the ship is in disrepair, a new theme is introduced, a five-note ascending line of worry, almost stranded in its lack of resolve. This theme will be used as almost a secondary theme for our main four-note motif. The episode also has a lot of fun moments, using music to introduce things like the ship computer, we first hear a lively rhythmic figure with percussive accents as Spock reads the ship's computer. Later, as Gary Mitchell's ESP powers grow, he starts reading this same ship computer's memory banks with increasing and alarming speed. As he does this, Courage gives us this same rhythmic figure with a poco a poco accelerando or in non-musicians' terms, music that keeps speeding up and getting faster. A fun use of music to drive the tension and the speed. We're introduced to another signature of Courage's in this episode as well which is the way he bends his brass notes. And later, when we finally get our all-out fight by two men in a ditch, the music is pounding. Sharp stabs of percussion, brass, and winds, sometimes catching or mickey-mousing the punches between Kirk and Mitchell. We hear it set to what sounds like a combination of our two introduced themes stated in four notes like the first heroic theme, but melodically more representing the ascending ESP theme, 
as if the two themes have combined, like Mitchell and Kirk, for this fight. it ends in a way that's similar to how it began, with our heroic four-note motif, but much shorter and sweeter than the final credit music that we got in the first pilot. Here is the ending that Courage wrote for the new pilot. Ultimately, this pilot was a success and led to Desilu getting a green light from NBC. Though there was one note that got unanimous consensus. Everyone wanted Courage's original theme song back into the show. So this pilot, titled Where No Man Has Gone Before, ended up having its opening re-edited to closely resemble the format of the first pilot. And every episode thereafter got the same treatment. Though it's the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before aired as the third episode of season one. Though viewers of the show must certainly have noticed that the costumes were a bit different, and that Bones McCoy was suddenly missing and replaced by a different older doctor, and that Mr. Spock wore a completely different uniform with noticeably different makeup. Well, whatever happened to the first pilot? The cage, what happened to that? Well, believe it or not, it also made it to air for season one, brilliantly reimagined as a two-part episode called The Menagerie. It aired as episodes 11 and 12, and in this new presentation, Mr. Spock tells the story of his previous assignment under a different captain, Captain Pike, while he's on trial for trying to take a wounded Pike back to the Talos system. Eventually, both pilots successfully made it to our TV sets as part of season one. And all of Courage's music for these pilots set the tone for Star Trek music as we know it. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to the Soundtrack Show. With the second pilot accepted, Star Trek headed into production on season one. 27 episodes are ordered up, one of which is a two-part wraparound rework of the original pilot called The Menagerie Parts 1 and 2, as previously mentioned. And the inclusion of the second pilot where no man has gone before, brings the season one total to 29 episodes. With only two pilots being musically completed, that leaves us hours of television to write scores for, the equivalent of scoring more than a dozen feature films. Well, my dear friends, as many of you I'm sure already know, that just ain't gonna happen. Not on a TV budget in the mid-1960s. 
Here are some fascinating facts when we start to wonder how music was covered for the entire first season of Star Trek. Alexander Courage, the writer of Trek's famous theme and composer for its two pilots, would only score two more episodes of season one. Four additional composers were also brought in. But out of the 29 total episodes, the number of original episodic scores written for season one is only 13. 13! And three of those aren't full episodic scores. They only contain some original music. They're partial scores. And by the way, 13 scores is inclusive of the two pilot scores already completed. So how on earth does any of this make sense? How do we cover an entire 29-episode season with only 13 episodes worth of music? As I'm sure you've guessed, music from these scores was cleverly re-edited into the remaining episodes. But there's more complexity to that task than one may think. For now, here's a little background to help us understand why TV music was produced this way in the 1960s. Television music in general works under a union contract. The union? The American Federation of Musicians, or AFM. TV and film music were under contract with AFM in 1966, as they are today at the time of this recording. And while the rules have changed over the decades, TV producers had certain minimum requirements that production seasons had to hit in 1966. This minimum was based on the length of each episode and the number of episodes in a season. So in the case of Star Trek, the calculation from AFM is that they were required to record live music for 39 hours for a 26-episode season. Well, what does that mean? Okay. All right. Well, let's break this down. Let's say that on average, it takes five hours of recording to produce one episode of music. So, if we were to round 39 hours up to 40 for easy math, it's easy to see that Star Trek's producers were required by AFM to record eight episodes worth of new music for their first season. A season, by the way, was defined by each calendar year, starting June 1st annually. From there, they were allowed to reuse any music recorded for that season within that season, but could not use it on any other season without re-recording to keep musicians working. And they couldn't bring in music from outside sources, such as libraries. If you recorded 40 hours worth of Trek, you were clear to use it for the entire season, but you were in the clear to reuse for just that season. By the way, these rules were in place until about the early 1980s, where each episode then had to have its own music. So, for you Star Trek fans out there, Every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which first aired in 1987, has its own complete score for this reason. But in 1966, for Star Trek The Original Series, this was not the case. You know, one of the reasons why Star Trek The Original Series has such memorable music, then, is not simply because it aired in syndication for decades after its initial release, that's certainly part of it, but also because of repetition across multiple episodes. And sometimes, the same music was used multiple times even within one episode. So, if you're a longtime fan of Star Trek, this is a very real-world reason why so much of this music may feel burned into your memory. As an audience, we've heard 
so many of these music cues many more times than we may have realized. But even then, 13 episodes worth of music is no small task. That's still a feature film trilogy's worth of scoring to do over the course of a handful of short months. This is where our group of composers come into play, and I'd like to introduce each one. The first, of course, is Alexander Sandy Courage, who we've discussed at length. Beyond writing the theme and the music for both pilots, Sandy scored two additional episodes of season one of Star Trek, The Man Trap, which was the first episode to ever air, and The Naked Time, bringing his season one total to four episodes. Next up, we have the second composer hired on Star Trek, and like Sandy Courage, is monumentally important to the music of this series. This composer was producer Robert Justman's favorite composer of the bunch. Not Courage, but this one. And he ended up writing more episodes of Star Trek than any other composer who worked on the original series, including Courage. This composer's name is Fred Steiner. No relation to Max Steiner, the famous film composer who I dedicated an episode of this show to, Fred Steiner was a composer of TV and film music, just like Sandy Courage. Besides Star Trek, some of his more memorable compositions include the theme to the hit TV series, Perry Mason. And the theme to Rocky and Bullwinkle. Jets in an open sky, a streak of gray, and a cheerful... But Steiner was also an orchestrator, just like Sandy Courage. And he also worked with both Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams. In addition, he worked with Quincy Jones as an orchestrator and composer of additional music for The Color Purple. And of Star Trek's original 79 episodes, Fred Steiner wrote a whopping 29 of them himself making him the largest musical contributor by volume for Star Trek The Original Series. For Season 1, Fred was brought in and started scoring at the same time that Courage was starting his two remaining episodes. In this first season, he wrote very memorable scores. Charlie X, Mud's Women, and four partial scores for The Carbamite Maneuver, Balance of Terror, What Are Little Girls Made Of?, and City on the Edge of Forever. A partial score, by the way, is a score that contains a lot of new music, but much of the episode is also tracked with existing music. Two composers down, three to go. Which leads me to a story. After Sandy Courage finished his two episodes, he left Star Trek to go back to Fox. Now, while legend has it that it's because of a very real dispute with Gene Roddenberry over royalties for the main theme... Roddenberry wrote lyrics to the main theme so he could claim half the royalties, half the publishing. Courage left because he was offered to work on one of the biggest musicals of his career at Fox, Dr. Doolittle, which earned him an Academy Award nomination. He simply couldn't do both, and while I'm sure Courage wasn't thrilled at losing half of his royalties on the main theme of Star Trek, he did actually come back to the show to do library cues for season two and he scored two more episodes in season three. Why didn't you stay with Star Trek? 
It's very simple. First of all, Dr. Doolittle was, was a great feather in the cap because Lionel uh, had given me co-music director on, um, on the, the Pleasure Seekers. And now on Dr. Doolittle, he gave me another co-music director credit, which means, you know, if, if there's an Academy Award nomination, you get an Academy, you know, you're part of it. So it was the, the number one musical of all time. Dr. Doolittle was just too big an opportunity to pass up. Oh, yes. There wasn't any rift, really, with Gene. What happened with Gene was I got a phone call. It was Gene's lawyer, Mazelish. And he said, I just, I'm calling you to tell you that um, since you signed a, a piece of paper back there saying that if Gene ever wrote a lyric to your theme, that he would split your, roy you know, your, uh, your royalties on, on, the, on the theme. You know, I, I think it was Mazelish probably who put him up to doing it that way. Basically then, Gene was looking to make a little extra cash because Star Trek was going down the tubes and was not likely to be renewed. That's right. Actually, I have to confess something to you. I was really stupid. Uh, what I should have done was to stay with Star Trek. You know, one, in, in hindsight, it's wonderful. I should have stayed with Star Trek, you know, since I didn't have themes to use at Fox. I was just somebody for hire, and that was, that was it. And uh, there was no theme. Theme is like a song, in a way. And uh, you can write a, a, a stupid little song. You can make a million dollars out of it. You know, if you write a huge score, you can make 10000 But because of Courage's departure, Desilu's music director, Wilbur Hatch, hired the show's third composer, Saul Kaplan. Saul Kaplan was a concert pianist, playing at venues like Carnegie Hall, when he started writing music for films, such as Titanic and Niagara, both from 1953. Kaplan only ever wrote two episodes of Star Trek, and only one for its first season. But Kaplan's music is some of the most tracked or reused music in the entire series, as he wrote some very, very memorable cues. His one dramatic episode of season one is called The Enemy Within. On to composer number four. Joseph Mullendore was originally hired by Desilu's music director, Wilbur Hatch, to write a series of library music cues, that is, small pieces of music to help create a library to be tracked into future episodes. Other than that, he only wrote one episode of Star Trek in season one and then never returned to the show. His one episode is the theatrical, quite literally Shakespearean episode called The Conscience of the King. Mullendore, which is how he's credited by the way, not as Joseph Mullendore, but just Mullendore, wrote music that was unique to Star Trek because he actually did bring in string players, giving season one at least a taste of a string section as his episodic music and library cues are tracked throughout the remainder of the season. And last, but certainly not least, our fifth composer, Gerald Freed. Perhaps best known outside of Star Trek for his early work with Stanley Kubrick, 
Freed also wrote most of the episodes of a little show called Gilligan's Island. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. A fact he didn't flaunt when trying to get hired on Star Trek for fear of not getting hired because of how wildly different Star Trek style is by comparison to Gilligan's Island. But ironically, he ended up scoring an episode called Shore Leave, an episode that has fantasy and comedic elements that aren't too far of a stylistic stretch. But as stylized as Shore Leave's score is, Gerald Freed also wrote one of the most amazing musical episodes of all time in season two, the memorable and often parodied score for Amok Time. This combat is to the death. Though he only wrote that one episode for season one, Gerald Freed's four total Star Trek scores add tremendous character and excitement to the overall series. So, of our 13 original season one scores, it breaks down like this. Alexander Courage, four episodes. Fred Steiner, six episodes, though four of those six are partial scores. And Saul Kaplan, Joseph Mullendor, and Gerald Freed each wrote one episode, giving us a total of 13. On the next episode, we're going to touch on highlights of each composer's contribution to the overall music of Star Trek, and we'll begin to deconstruct a puzzle. How do we write music that is memorable, but also highly reusable? Who wrote what first, and why? How do library cues fit into the episodes? And just how, in the age of tape machines and mag reels, did the team at Desilu manage to expertly track an entire legendary season of television using just a few hours worth of music. We'll discuss all of this and more. Until then, enjoy your shore leave, and we'll hail you via your communicator when it's time to beam up. Thank you.